The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. See you. Welcome, 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 welcome. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. It's Saturday evening, uh, and we are going to have one of our lovely, lovely Saturday evening. It's actually night, right? Saturday night conversations. So glad to have you here with us. Um, so much that we can talk about. Good times, good times. Um, I don't know where to begin. A lot of good things are in the works, but uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Um, share this on Facebook, share this on Twitter, share this on Reddit, share this on social media, share this everywhere videos are posted or menaced by international communism. Share, share this video. Um, you know, always fun to talk with all of you. Uh, so welcome everybody. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Uh, these are good times, good times for all. Uh, the way this works is I give my opening remarks and then after I give my opening remarks, uh, from there, I do a roll call where I call you out as I see you, names and locations. Uh, and then from there, after I do that, um, then I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the show. So your super chat questions make or break this program. Um, so I've got plenty of unnamed water beverage. And it's cold outside here in New York. But it's nice and warm here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment. And we are going to have a great conversation. Um, I recently had a nice chat with Sabi Sobs, formerly of the Fred Hampton leftists. Uh, we had a great chat uh, that is uploaded. It's on this channel. It's also on Sabi Sobs' channel. So check that out. Good stuff. And I want to let you all know that very soon we are going to be on Rockfin, uh, the Rockfin app. And we're going to have a new setup. I'm getting a new webcam, a new microphone. We're going to start doing these streams a little bit differently. And it looks like, fingers crossed, I might be able to do calls. I might actually be able to do um, have, have a call-in show. You just got the BreadTube book and you're reading it. Well, I really hope you like it, Rob. I really hope you enjoy the BreadTube book. And, uh, you know, if you if you like it, be sure to pop a review onto the, uh, onto the, onto the page, onto Goodreads, onto Amazon, or wherever you got it. So, Really glad to hear that, but um, but yeah, things are going pretty well. New setup coming. Using my laptop with a camera uh, and a microphone. That is the plan. So exciting new developments in the world of this YouTube channel. Very, very exciting. Soon we will be on Rockfin as well. Right now, that's all being set up. So I'm quite excited about that. So that's a new development. So very, very good stuff. Um, and so I guess I'll get into my opening remarks for tonight. Um, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. So what's happening in Kazakhstan? What's happening in Kazakhstan? Well, it started out because the cost of heating gas... The cost of heating gas is very high right now. And it's very high in Europe, it's very high in the United States, and it's very high in Central Asia. And Kazakhstan uh, is, uh, 
at this point, country in Central Asia. And it's cold, it's wintertime, and there have been traditionally price caps on the cost of heating gas. Diplomacy and Cold War. Writing that down. And thank you, Chancellor, for the super chat. Um, but the cost of heating gas has gone up. There have traditionally been caps on the cost of heating gas in Kazakhstan. The government has a cap on it, regulates the price. But the government of Kazakhstan decided to take a neoliberal free market move. And they maneuvered and they lifted the cap on the price. And almost overnight, the cost of heating gas shot up. So there were a lot of protests in response to that. People generally don't like neoliberalism. People don't like free market reforms. Uh, people don't like privatizations. People don't like the, you know, the essential things in life, like heating gas in the wintertime, costing a lot more. So there were some protests against it. The initial protests were peaceful. And then it appears that what happened is the U.S. government and the CIA called on the phone all of their operatives in the country and said, time to make it go boom. And in response to genuine outrage about a neoliberal policy that the government of Kazakhstan imposed, um, at that point, because Kazakhstan is aligned with Russia, uh, because Kazakhstan is aligned with China and is an important part of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know, the U.S. government and the U.S. imperialists seized the moment and they made the country go crazy. And right now in Kazakhstan, things are pretty bad. Um, you know, things are pretty bad. Things are pretty bad in the country. Uh, and that's one thing that I guess it's important for people to notice. This, this is not a good situation. Um, there's people dying on the streets. There's dead bodies being turned up. Uh, there's just utter chaos. It's a nightmare in the country. And uh, the government immediately stepped in and reimposed, reimposed the price cap on the cost of natural gas. So what the initial protests were about is over now. However, that hasn't stopped a lot of these U.S.-aligned forces and extremists from just running through the country. And there's a huge state of unrest and instability in the country. So... It's important to note uh, that Kazakhstan is the signatory of a treaty. It's a signatory of a treaty that it signed a treaty with Russia and a number of other countries uh, that if, if the country is ever faced with a security crisis, uh, these countries, it's the CSTO, right? Uh, and if it's ever faced with a crisis, they will intervene. They will send peacekeeping forces to protect each other. So Russia, as a signatory of the CSTO treaty, has, has fulfilled its obligations. The president of Kazakhstan said, look, we're having a security crisis in the country. And so he, you know, he requested that Russia send their forces to Kazakhstan to deal with the unrest. Um, now, in response to that, we have the U.S. government saying they don't think it's legal 
They don't think it's legal. They're, they're questioning the legality of Russia sending peacekeeping forces to Kazakhstan. Now, I'm not an expert on international law by any means. But my understanding is if the internationally recognized government of a country calls you up and says, geez, we're having a crisis. And you remember that treaty that we signed that said you'd send troops if we're having a crisis? Well, now we need to invoke that and you need to send troops. That's not illegal. If there's a treaty obligating obligating you to fulfill it, number one, right? Um, sure, uh, sure, Javier, absolutely. Much appreciated. There's a treaty obligating, you know, obligating the country to intervene. You know, if the uh, the internationally recognized government requests their presence, there is no way that that's a violation of international law. However, both Jen Psaki, the White House spokesperson, has said she questions whether or not Russia is legally allowed to send troops to Kazakhstan. Uh, we have Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, saying, oh, well, you know, you know, once Russian tr Russians come come in, you know, you don't know if they're going to leave. Um and this is all foolishness because, because, again, the elected government has asked them to come in. Russia is, in, is obligated under this treaty to send the forces in there. Um, so the entire way this is being presented in U.S. media is outrageous. Look, the Syrian government has never given the permission to the United States to have troops in Syria. But yet there are a number of U.S. troops in Syria in violation of international law, violating the Syrian government's territorial integrity. There are U.S. soldiers in Syria without the permission of the Syrian government. When the USA invaded Iraq, you'll remember that, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, 2003. Again, the Iraqi government never gave permission for the United States to do it. When the United States invaded Afghanistan, that was never, Afghans never gave permission. And thank you, Neil Frazier. The USA never gave permission for Afghanistan uh, to be uh, invaded by the United States. Uh, Afghanistan never gave permission, right? Uh, so there are many, many examples of the United States illegally invading countries without the permission of the government and then staying there. The United States occupied Afghanistan for 20 years. 20 years uh, it was in Afghanistan. So the, the layers of hypocrisy we're seeing from the United States are astounding, number one. Uh, and the reality of why Russia's troops are in Kazakhstan is, is pretty basic, but it's being obscured by American media. They're not talking about the treaty. But there's more to it than this. And I want to tell you what this is really about. All right? I am tonight going to tell you why this winter you'll notice a pattern. Things have been getting bad with Russia. And then Putin and Biden talk on the phone, and that's supposed to make things better, but then things get bad with Russia. And now on Monday, Putin and Biden are supposed to talk on the phone. I am going to tell you, I am planning to tell you, I'm going to tell you what's going on. I am going to tell you what's going on. And it's this. Look at the price of natural gas right now. Natural gas costs a huge amount right now. This is very, very high. It's a cold winter in Europe. It's a very cold winter in Europe, number one. And number two, you know, we, coming out of the pandemic, supply chain issues, et cetera. So the price of natural gas is very expensive. 
and ExxonMobil and BP and Chevron and Shell Oil are making a killing. They are making a killing off of this. And Devon Energy, a fracking company, they're making a killing off of this. And the Wall Street, London natural gas companies are making a shit ton of money. Meanwhile, Russia, which is a major natural gas producer, right? Its economy is centered around two state-controlled energy companies, Gazprom and Rosneft. Russia is a big part of the natural gas markets. And right now, there is a very big fear on the part of the Wall Street and London energy companies that somehow Russia is going to get in on their price gouging fest. They're gouging right now, right? The Wall Street companies are gouging. Uh, the London Stock Exchange, they're gouging. And they see the NATO countries of Europe as their captive markets, right? France, Belgium, Germany, uh, uh, you know, Luxembourg, uh, you know, who else? I mean, they these countries, they are very much very much captive markets of the United States. But there is a new pipeline connecting Germany to Russia. The It's called the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline. And it's finished, but it's not turned on yet. The government of Germany hasn't turned on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Meanwhile, Russia is willing to sell more natural gas to Europe. They are excited. They want to sell more natural gas to Europe. However... There's now a political situation where European countries feel like, oh, we can't, we can't buy natural gas from Russia because Ukraine, because Belarus, because Kazakhstan. And that's what's going on here. This is really what's going on here, right? 1968 Dubček. All right. This is what's going on here. Is that that basically, Wall Street and London natural gas companies are making a killing right now on natural gas, on heating gas. They're gouging everybody. The, the price of natural gas is higher than ever. And if Russia were to start exporting natural gas over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, and if Russia were to start, in, in other ways, shipping natural gas into Europe, it would drive the price down and it would reduce the role of the of the United States and Western capitalist countries in selling natural gas to Europe. So right now, it is in the material interest of the oil monopolies and the natural gas monopolies to do everything they can to increase tensions with Russia. Because tension with Russia means that Nord Stream 2 pipeline doesn't turn on. Tension with Russia means that that European countries don't put in orders for natural gas from Gazprom, a state-controlled energy company in Russia. So my prediction is that once things get warm again, and once it's warmer, that things will de-escalate with Russia. But as long as it's freezing cold, as long as the price of natural gas is through the roof, there is going to be an attempt to keep as much tension with Russia as possible. Whether it's, you know, Ukraine, they're playing up this idea, oh my God, Russia's going to invade Ukraine. Russia's not going to invade Ukraine, folks. Russia's not going to invade Ukraine. Uh, that's ridiculous. Um, meanwhile, the government in Kiev is waging terror against the people in the eastern regions, trying to provoke a situation where Russia might feel like they have to intervene. But Russia's not going to intervene. They're not going to invade Ukraine. Meanwhile, 
you know, Belarus, we saw the United States destabilizing Belarus, trying to overthrow the government of Belarus, and, you know, Russia aligned with the government of Belarus. And now we see this situation in Kazakhstan. And what sparked the whole thing in Kazakhstan? The price of natural gas, right? The, the leader of Kazakhstan made a stupid decision, a stupid, stupid decision, and tried to engage in free market neoliberalism, lifted the price cap on natural gas, a stupid move, and that sparked off an explosion. And, you know, it was at first a peaceful protest, but then the United States called up all their friends and allies and said, get them, you know, make the country go boom. And now the country is in a state of unrest and insecurity. And so now, of course, Russia has to send its military and they're obligated under the treaty to send their military to Kazakhstan to, to you know, stabilize the country. And that's happening happening, uh, you know, and the United States is saying, oh, my God, Russian aggression. I mean, this is this is the game. This is about maintaining a monopoly. It's about keeping Russia from selling natural gas. That's what's going on here. It is creating political and geopolitical tension in order to prevent Russia from expanding its role in the international natural gas markets and exporting more natural gas so that American companies can continue to have their grift, you know, their, their, you know, price gouging grifting party. That's basically what's going on here. Um, um, right, I know. Ron, Russia. And that's what's going on here. It's, this is this is about the fact that that the energy giants in the United States and in Britain see this as an opportunity to make lots and lots of money, and they don't want Russia to ruin the party. They want to keep the prices high, and they are being the biggest hypocrites in the world. Um, NK defectors. They are being the biggest biggest hypocrites in the world. Wrote it down, and the reason they're being they're they're trying to blame Russia for the natural gas you know, costs. And Russia has said, no, we have this huge pipeline we built natural, you know, in, in called the Nord Stream 2. If you want more natural gas, we built this huge pipeline, just turn it on and suddenly you'll have way more natural gas and the price of natural gas will go down. And furthermore, we haven't gotten any new orders. So if you want more natural gas from Russia, just put in your orders. And they're blaming Russia for the price of natural gas being so high. They're saying, oh, it's Russia's fault. The price of natural gas is going high. And Russia is saying, it's not our fault. We want to sell more natural gas. We just built this huge fucking pipeline. We built this huge fucking pipeline with Germany so we could sell you more natural gas. We want to sell you more natural gas. And, you know, and, and the United States and, and Britain are being, oh, my God, because of Russia, the price of natural gas is going up. And Russia is saying, no, it's not. We want to sell more natural gas. And the USA is going, oh, Russia, Russia, you know, they, they're driving up the price of natural gas and they're threatening to invade Ukraine. And now they just invaded Kazakhstan and they're, you know, and they, they're supporting Belarus and oh, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's all a big charade. Russia wants to sell more natural gas to Europe. Russia wants to turn on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Russia has to send troops to Kazakhstan because they're obligated to under the treaty. Uh, Russia doesn't want there to be instability in their neighbor Belarus, and Russia doesn't want to invade Ukraine. Russia is not invading Ukraine. Uh, Russia is concerned about the fact that in the eastern regions, in the Donbass, they're killing people with drones. Look that up. They're using Turkish-made drones to kill people in East Ukraine, that the government in Kiev 
as a Nazi battalion. Did you know that? I bet you didn't know that. The Azov Battalion. Google it. A-Z-O-V. Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion is an official Nazi wing of the Ukrainian military. It is the, the Nazi wing. They just had a parade in Ukraine to honor a Nazi collaborator and a participant in the Holocaust, Stepan Bandera. And all these bread tubers, all these wokesters, all these con artists, you know, serfs and Jabba the Vosh and Skippy the Bear, none of them said anything. The U.S. government is giving deadly lethal weapons to Ukraine, bombs and weapons to Ukraine. And the government of Ukraine just had a huge parade to honor a Nazi collaborator named Stepan Bandera, right? They had this big parade to honor a guy who rounded up Jews and put them in death camps and worked with Hitler in Ukraine to fight the communists. And, you know, Stepan Bandera, Holocaust participant, war criminal, Nazi collaborator. They just had a huge parade for this guy in Ukraine. There's a whole Nazi section of the Ukrainian army called the Azov Battalion, right? It's an official wing of the army that is Nazi, right? And the U.S. government, uh, the U.S. government is arming them and all of that. And did Jabba the Vosh go, wah, 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 wah. U.S. government is arming Nazis in Ukraine. I'm mad about it. I'm mad about it. No, he didn't say anything about it. Did, uh, did Skippy the Bear go, the U.S. government is like arming Nazis in Ukraine. And I don't like that. That's like stupid, dude. No, did he do anything about it? No, 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 no. No, they didn't do anything about it. They didn't do anything about it. None of them care. They don't really care. All this calling everybody a Nazi and everyone's a Nazi and they don't care about it. They don't care. They don't care. They're grifters, right? They're grifters. They're supporting U.S. foreign policy. They're told to target anyone who's legit anti-imperialist. That's all they are. They're they're wokesters. Uh, they're, they're a woke joke, right? And they don't really care about this. There's an actual Nazi government in Ukraine that is being backed by the United States. I mean, there's Nazis in the government. I mean, most people in the government are not Nazis, but there's a Nazi division of their military, and it's called the Azov Battalion. They just had a parade to honor an actual Nazi in Ukraine, and they don't care about it, right? Um, but that's what's going on here. The, the tension with Russia is about driving the natural gas price up, making sure Russia doesn't get in on the market at a time when they're making, they're raking it in like thieves. And I mean, if you look at the price of heating gas in Europe, they are raking it in, you know, the, uh, the, 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 you know, BP and Chevron and ExxonMobil, they are raking it in like thieves right now. They are sitting back and they are laughing. They are making so much money off of the cost of natural gas. They are sitting there and, and just laughing their heads off right now. Um, meanwhile, um, meanwhile, Russia is saying, oh, you're upset about the, the high price of natural gas. Turn on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. We'll buy from you. But and then they turn around and these stooges in the media and these, you know, puppet politicians get up and say it's because of Russia. It's because of Russia. The price of natural gas is high. It's not because of Russia. It's not because of Russia. Do you think Russia wanted there to be rioting in Kazakhstan? No. Uh, no, they didn't, right? Um, and it's it's very clear there's been some infiltration of the government of Kazakhstan, right? This level of instability, you can't have that just naturally if there's not problems high up, right? You know, 
you know, unrest and protests happen, but this is coming from the top. You know, there's there's been, you know, some prominent leaders of the security forces in Kazakhstan that have been arrested. And it's pretty clear that there was some infiltration going on that, that you know, U.S. imperialism had infiltrated the government of Kazakhstan at some level. They were just waiting for the right moment. And then there was real anger over this stupid move of, of lifting the price gap on natural gas. And then, you know, the country went up in flames. And now it's terrifying there. Uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the RT office in, um, in Kazakhstan's capital, they found a dead body in front of the building. A 22-year-old dead body was found. Uh, you know, there is like, there are, there's like, just like, they're robbing people on the streets. Like you can't, I mean, there's like, it's, it's anarchy, right? People are, are getting, you know, robbed at gunpoint by gangs running through the streets. It's like, it's utter chaos in the country. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the video, but there's people like driving cars into store windows just to do it, right? I mean, it's, it's utter chaos in Kazakhstan right now. Kazakhstan is obligated, uh, has a treaty obligating Russia to send their troops. So Russia's obligated to, to send their troops, and that's what's going on. Um, but it's about the price of natural gas, and it's about the fact that Wall Street doesn't want any competitors. They don't want any competitors. The Wall Street imperialists, they want the whole world to be poor and impoverished and a captive market. That's what they want. They want to keep the world poor so that they can stay rich. Back when Russia was poor during the 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the U.S. imperialists had no problem with Russia. Russia was fine back then, right? When Boris Yeltsin was there and there was 30% unemployment and there were old people starving on the streets who'd lost their pensions, uh, you know, when, I mean, during the Boris Yeltsin years in the 90s when Russia was, was just deeply impoverished, the U.S. imperialists were fine with Russia. It's only when Putin got in there and put oil and natural gas under public control, um, you know, put them under public control, recentered the economy around a state-controlled energy corporation, state-controlled gas corporation, and got Russia's economy going and then, all of a sudden at that point, then the USA was like, oh my God, Putin's a dictator. Oh, Putin's, vi uh, they got mad. And that's what it's about, right? It's about the fact that Russia used to be an impoverished captive market, but now Russia is a competitor. Right? Russia sells oil and gas on the international markets in competition with ExxonMobil and BP and Shell and Chevron. And they hate China for the exact same reason. When China was the sick man of Asia and it was deeply impoverished, uh, before 1949, China didn't have a single steel mill. And during those years, the USA was fine with China. But when the Chinese Communist Party came in there, started building hospitals and building schools and building power plants, and especially after, after, you know, 1978, when, you know, China started really growing. Now that China has the world's biggest cell phone manufacturer, right, that makes better phones than Apple, Huawei Technologies. Now that China uh, is the leading exporter of steel in the world, half of all the steel in the world is made in China. Did you know that? Half of all the steel on earth is made in China. Now the U.S. imperialists all of a sudden, oh, China, oh, got to stop China. Oh, yes, Huawei phones are a threat to national security. Oh, right, yeah, Huawei phones are a threat to national security. Uh, just like it's Russia's fault, the natural gas costs are so high in Europe. Yeah, really. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's so predictable. When countries are impoverished, poor, and starving, U.S. imperialism loves them. And when they 
assert their independence, take control of their own economy, start building up their own industries, raising their people out of poverty, controlling the means of production, that's when, that's when the U.S. imperialists attacked them. At the beginning of the 20th century, Russia and China were both, um, were both poor, right? I don't know what, what, what do you want me to know about that, Peter, right? Uh, I don't know what that means. I mean, okay. Uh, but, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, Russia and China were both poor. But during the 20th century, they both had socialist revolutions. And it was with socialism, with socialist centrally planned economies, with socialist planning, that Russia became the first country to go into outer space, that they defeated the Nazis, they invented LED lights, they electrified the country, they wiped out illiteracy, they built modern universities, they built the world's largest steel manufacturing apparatus. Uh, you know, the achievements of the Soviet Union economically were massive. Before communism, Russia was dirt poor, but it's communism, it was Stalin and the five-year plans and communism that turned Russia into an industrial superpower that defeated the Nazis, that invented space travel. So anyone who tells you that communism doesn't work is an idiot. I mean, they're just, they're just wrong. I mean, they're not an idiot, okay? I apologize. They're just misinformed, right? Russia, before communism, dirt poor. Russia, because of communism, became a world superpower. China, 1949, before the communists came to power, China was dirt poor. Now, because of the Communist Party, because of the Communist Party, right? Nazis. Because of the Communist Party, China has become a world superpower, the second largest economy in the world. And that's the Communist Party that did that. That's the Communist Party that did that. And it's under the leadership of the Communist Party with five-year economic plans, uh, with state-run banks and state-run industries and, and central planning, where even the private companies are told what to do uh, what to do by the government. That's how China became a superpower. So people who tell you that communism's never worked anywhere, it's never succeeded anywhere, it always fails, they don't know what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're talking about. And the United States and Western imperialism is not developing the world. Look at Haiti. Haiti has been doing business with the United States for years. It's got free trade agreements and it's utterly impoverished. Right? Look at the countries in Central America that have been under the thumb of U.S. imperialism. Guatemala, Honduras, deeply impoverished and suffering. But look at Nicaragua, where the Sandinistas have a socialist government, where they've raised people out of poverty, they've built paved roads, they've wiped out illiteracy, they've, they've electrified 98% of the country. They've done amazing things, right? The Sandinistas have broken Nicaragua out of the control of the U.S. imperialists. Right? If you think Western capitalism is developing the world, compare Haiti to Cuba. Haiti, free market country under the boot of U.S. imperialism. Deeply impoverished, illiteracy. People are, are heating their homes with charcoal, literally heating their homes with charcoal Right in this century. I mean, not enough electrification of the country, impoverishment, et cetera. But compare Haiti to Cuba. Cuba, full employment, wiped out illiteracy, public education, one of the a healthcare system that is the model of the world, breaking out of U.S. imperialism is good, is good. It's good for working people and it's good for the country. Um, 
and Wall Street imperialism and Wall Street capitalism and, and the domination of a country by Western imperialism doesn't lead to people being raised out of poverty. It doesn't. It, it doesn't lead to people being raised out of poverty. It does the opposite, right? Uh, these color revolutions that we've seen in country after country after country where Western capitalism has sunk its fangs, you know, it's made things worse. All across Eastern Europe, in the 90s, they were saying, oh, these countries are breaking free from communism. They're developing, they're developing democracy. And what they got was neoliberalism, mass unemployment, mass suffering, mass poverty, drug addiction, suicide. It was been a nightmare. Uh, however, you know, if you look at when things started to change in Russia, things started to change with Putin when he reasserted state control over Gazprom and Rosneft and used state-controlled energy companies to lift the country out of poverty. This idea that the free market is going to bring prosperity is a lie. And we've embraced free market logic in the United States for a long time. Why is it you think they're unpaving the roads in states all across this country? Why, why is it? You know, you know, it's because municipalities can't afford it. Right, the the local governments are so deeply in debt they can't afford to maintain paved roads anymore. Um, you know why is it you think our power plants are crumbling across the United States? Our water treatment facilities are not properly purifying the water. Why are our schools in the United States so bad? Right, again, it's anything that is public property in the United States has been left to rot because libertarianism, free market idea, right? It's always better if a private company does it, right? And, you know, the same goes for, um, the same goes for, um, for prisons, right? We have prisons for profit in the United States. What could possibly go wrong with that? Prisons for profit. Think about it. That's unbelievable, right? We have got a military industrial complex where corporations benefit financially from an escalation of tension around the world, war, Unbelievable. Across the United States, they are ripping apart our public school system. We've been privatizing schools, setting up charter schools, and you know, and place after place after place, we have schools for profit, charter schools, etc. And education in the United States hasn't improved. They've been doing this since the 80s. We've been introducing school choice, privatization, things, educational quality in the United States has been getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Right? I mean, the situation. At this point, um, the situation at this point in the United States is a great case study about how free market policies can ruin a country. We don't have health care in the United States. We're the only industrial country that doesn't provide national health care for its population. Um, we, we have an awful educational system. Uh, and, you know, the roads are falling apart and the country is not doing very well. And this is our addiction to this free market belief. This free market belief. This is this is neoliberalism in practice. So that's my take on the whole situation uh, regarding Kazakhstan, regarding the price of natural gas, uh, regarding the situation when it comes to um, when it comes to Russia and the United States and what it's all about. I'm just giving you my input. Um, so. We can go from there, um, but, uh, but you know, I mean, again, there's so much distortion in our media. There's so much hypocrisy. 
And it's important to note, you know, we talk about the situation in Kazakhstan. Yes, these protests started out over a very legitimate concern, right? The president did a very stupid thing and lifted those caps on natural gas and people protested against it. And then in response to that, the USA said, all right, let's make it go boom. And it actually really closely parallels what happened a couple years ago in Iran. Very closely parallels this. I don't know if people noticed this, but a couple years ago in Iran, there was a riot about private banking. Private banking. What happened was that in, in a certain region in Iran, they changed the laws around banking, and there was some private banking going on, and the private bankers ripped some people off, and people lost their savings, so they started rioting. Um, and it was originally, it wasn't a pro-imperialist rally. It was the opposite. It was a rally against neoliberalism. They didn't like the fact that uh, that that private bankers had screwed them over. So they were protesting about it in one region. And then the USA called up all of its allies in Iran and said, make the country go boom. And and all of the allies of the United States went out into the, you know, went out into the streets and it turned it went from being a protest against free market reforms and neoliberalism to being just an anti-government protest staged by the United States and its NGOs to destabilize the country. Um Right. Okay. All right. All right. Wrote it down. And that's what happened, right? And again, the original protest was one that was supporting the Islamic Revolution because the Islamic Revolution had anti-capitalist foundations, not capitalism, but Islam. War of poverty against wealth. Those were the themes, you know, of the Islamic Revolution. And these protests that happened originally in Iran, they started out as anti-capitalist protests, as protests against the legalization of private banking and these private bankers that had screwed people over. But then the moment was seized. And then the U.S. imperialists seized the moment and turned it into something else. That's what happened in Kazakhstan. It started out as a protest. And here's the crazy thing. It, these are policies the USA supports. The USA, if they were to take over Iran, they'd have all kinds of private banking. There'd be, I mean, they would rip apart the state-controlled economy that the Islamic Revolution has created. And Kazakhstan, you think the USA, you think the USA would allow if they were to overthrow the government of Kazakhstan and, and impose a pro-US free market neoliberal regime in Kazakhstan? You think they would let that government put a price control on natural gas? Of course not. The people are up are revolting against the policies that the USA supports. And that's how outrageous it is. That's how discredited the US imperialists are. And it used to be they would get people to go out in the streets and protest for human rights and freedom. They could get the people to go out in the streets and protest against communism. Now they can't even do that. It's like they're trying to cause instability in Kazakhstan. They're cause, trying to cause instability in Iran. And they can't even find a pro-imperialist cause that they can get people to support. And so they're like, okay, oh, oh, wow, the government of Kazakhstan just did something we like. They lifted a price control. Now, we're all about free markets and reforms, but we can use that. Oh, the government in Iran just did something we like. They deregulated banking, but people might be mad about it, so we can use that. That's how desperate the U.S. imperialists are. They can't even get people to go. If they if they had a demonstration in Kazakhstan for human rights and freedom and civil liberties, and we want free market capitalism in Kazakhstan, nobody would show up. And if they had a protest in Iran 
uh, uh, you know, demanding that the Iran become an American free country with free trade and free market, no one would show up. So the U.S. imperialists are so desperate to cause instability in these countries, and they've been so discredited. American capitalism, uh, the free market system around the world, nobody, nobody wants to adopt that. That The only causes they can use to cause instability are causes that generally, uh, that generally are causes that that communists, you know, gain power on, are, are causes that anti-imperialists gain power on, right? Uh, you know, I mean, look, uh, you know, the fact that there's a price cap, right? Is there a price cap in the United States on the cost of natural gas? I don't think so. I don't think so. Right? Is there a price, a price cap on the price of gasoline in the United States? I don't think so. Right? Do do we regulate private banking? I mean, yeah, to some degree or other, but not anywhere near as much as they do in Iran. Uh, you know, I mean, I, the whole world saw the sees the United States right now. It's really funny, right? I, I was reading this. This is a, a random topic, but you know, parenting books are very popular around the world, and there's this new trend in parenting books they've got, right? And they've got you know how to parent like a Japanese family, how to parent like a Korean family, how to parent like like uh, like a British family, how to parent like a French parent. It, it, all these books trying to sell you the secrets, the tips uh, of parenting in different countries, how to parent, you know, in the Chinese way, how to parent like an African parent, African wisdom and how to be a parent. Uh, you know, I mean, it, 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 Native American parenting, right? I mean, all over the world, people are buying books about how to parent like a different culture, right? Um, all right. Scare. How to parent like a different culture. But there is not one book, there is not one book that I've ever heard of, that I've ever found on how to parent like an American. Nobody, nobody in the world says, oh boy, I want my kid to grow up to be just like Donald Trump. I want my kid to grow up to be just just like, you know, some American kid. I want my kid to grow up and shoot up a school. I want my kid to, to grow up and get addicted to heroin. Nobody says that. How to Parent Like an American. No one has even thought of writing that book. We are in a societal crisis right now, okay? And the whole world, you know, it's the anniversary of January 6th. Do you think we're the only people in the world that saw January 6th? We think we're only we're the only people in the world that saw Buffalo Head running around. No, those videos are shown all over the world. And the whole world is disgusted by US imperialism. And they look at the United States and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're supposed to be the best country in the world, the greatest country in the world. You're, you're the richest country in the world. And we got people, we got people sleeping on the streets at night. We've got millions of people without health insurance. Uh, your, your roads are falling apart. Your schools are shit. Your kids, you know, your kids graduate from high school and can't do basic math problems. What in the, like, the whole world is looking at the United States and going, not a fan, not a fan. That's what they're doing. They're looking at the United States and saying, not a fan. And this you know, in the 90s, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was this smug, we're the greatest country in the world. Not anymore, folks. Not anymore, right? The whole world is in shock. Look at our COVID death rates, right? And it's so funny because it's like, I can't make anybody happy. I don't know if you've noticed this. I can't make anybody happy. On the one hand, people say that I'm a social chauvinist. Have you heard this? 
Because I believe in socialism with American characteristics, because I say that socialism will make a better life for people, because I love my country and I'm angry about the situation facing it, people say, this is the line, I am a social chauvinist, right? Apparently. On the one hand, I'm a social chauvinist, right? I'm on here ranting about how bad things have gotten and how things are falling down, but I'm a social chauvinist. But fast forward to the other side, I'm also, quote unquote, anti-American. You know this? So I'm anti-American because I support people around the world that are asserting their independence. I think Russia has the right to, to fight for its national sovereignty. I think Chinese socialism has been very good for the country. I think Cuba and Venezuela and Iran and other countries that are fighting for their, their national liberation, their independence are good. So on the one hand, I'm a social chauvinist because I want socialism to improve the lives of Americans. And on the other hand, I'm anti-American because I'm pointing out the flaws of the United States, exposing the lies of U.S. foreign policy, and talking about why we need to align with the people around the world that are struggling against U.S. imperialism. I am neither. I am neither a social chauvinist, nor am I anti-American. I am an anti-imperialist. Imperialism is not a policy. Imperialism is not a thing you do. It is not a verb. Imperialism is a system. It is a global system of monopoly capitalism where a few banks and corporations and big monopolies dominate the world economy and grind the world into greater and greater poverty so that they can stay rich. And I am fundamentally opposed to that system. I am opposed to what that system does to people in Central America. I am opposed to what that system does to people in Africa. I am opposed to what that system does to people in Europe. And I am opposed to what that system does to people right here in the United States of America. Because the same big bankers and corporations and oil monopolies that are grinding this country into poverty, driving down our living standards, decreasing our life expectancy here in the United States, looting our communities, allowing our schools and roads to rot, are the same big banks and corporations that are destroying the world. And the same big corporations that have impoverished South and Central America, that have destroyed Africa, that have looted uh, the prosperous continent of Africa, are looting Ohio and Pennsylvania and Texas and Idaho and Milwaukee and South Carolina right now. We have the same enemy, the exact same enemy as the people of the world, the global monopoly capitalist system that dominates the world. The system of imperialism, capitalism in its highest stage, its monopoly stage, that is the enemy of all humanity. It is the enemy of America. It is the enemy of China. It is the enemy of Russia. It is the enemy of Central America, South America, Africa, Asia, Europe. It's the enemy of Australia. It is the enemy of the whole world. I am consistent in my views. I am neither a social chauvinist nor am I anti-American. I am anti-imperialism. And if you are a socialist, to call yourself a socialist in our time, to call yourself a socialist in our time means you are an anti-imperialist. It doesn't mean you want to start a worker cooperative with your friends. No, it doesn't mean that you just want a, a Medicare for all program, though we do advocate that that's good. Socialism means dismantling imperialism. It means breaking apart this system of global monopoly capitalism. That is what socialism means. Socialism is breaking apart imperialism and replacing it with an economic model that raises countries out of poverty, that raises the world up where people come first and not the profits of, of the few. Socialism means 
ripping apart imperialism. To be a socialist in our time means to be an anti-imperialist. If you are not an anti-imperialist, you are not a socialist. And if you are an anti-imperialist, you are by definition a socialist. You may not realize it yet, but at the end of the day, if you're opposed to this system of imperialism, more or less, as much as you might try to resist it, you're going to start moving towards socialism. Why? Why are you going to have to start moving towards socialism if you are fighting the imperialists? Because, because the the capitalists of the developing world are too weak. They are too weak to fight imperialism on their own. Che Guevara pointed this out in his writings, right? You know, the, the bourgeoisie of Bangladesh, the bourgeoisie of Honduras, the bourgeoisie of Nicaragua are too weak, are too weak to fight the imperialists on their own. And in order to mobilize resistance to the imperialists, they must bring the working class into motion. If you're fighting the imperialists, you must mobilize the working class. When Hugo Chavez first took office, he said he was for neither capitalism or socialism. He was for the third way. He was aligned with many Venezuelan capitalists who wanted independence from the American imperialists. But Hugo Chavez faced a coup and attacks by the imperialists. And it was only the working class that brought Hugo Chavez back to power. And pretty soon, in order to stay in power and defeat the imperialists, Hugo Chavez had to become a socialist and he had to mobilize the working class. He had to build Bolivarian circles. He had to move Venezuela towards socialism. He had to mobilize the proletariat, the workers, because the only way that Venezuela could resist imperialism was with the power of the working class. And the same for Nicaragua and the same for Iran. The Iranian government would not be in power for a minute if it wasn't for the working class. The Iranian government, the Islamic Republic, depends on the support of the working class. And they have mobilized the working class. They have Basij councils in every neighborhood. They provide health care and jobs and education for their population. And it's only because the Islamic Republic is aligned with and organizing the working class that they remain in power. So whether or not the Ayatollahs recognize it, right? They don't believe in Marxism. They say that they're neither capitalist nor socialist, but it's because of the fact, because of the fact that they are up against the U.S. imperialists, they've had to enter an alliance with the working class because only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. Let me repeat myself. Only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. 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 Only the working class. Only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. So any leader and any force in the world that wants to stand up to the imperialists is going to have to enter an alliance with the working class. It's going to have to start providing jobs and schools and education. It's starting to start to have to start building community organizations to mobilize the working class, Basij councils, Bolivarian circles, citizens power councils, right? And the Soviets, it was in the Soviet Union, it was the Soviets, right? These workers councils. The only, only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. Only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. And that said, anyone who comes into a confrontation with the imperialists is going to be pushed into a situation where they're going to start moving somewhat towards socialism. They're going to have to bring the working class 
into motion. Now, obviously, there are different parts of the world where the working class is more in motion than others. But regardless, any country that goes up against the imperialists and continues to go up against the imperialists is going to have to mobilize the working class. And the strength of all anti-imperialist governments is the working class. And furthermore, here in the United States, the only way we're going to defeat the imperialists is with the working class. Only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. And the working people of the United States, the working people of the United States have been lied to. They have been lied to. They've been suckered. They've been conned. They've been ripped off. They've had their living standards decrease. They've had their wages go down. They've had their communities dotted with empty foreclosed homes. They've had their jobs shipped overseas. And it's time to fight back. They're tired of seeing their kids go to prison in a prison industrial complex. They're tired of seeing their relatives get addicted to opioids. They're tired of the young people facing a life of hope, hopelessness and meaninglessness fomented by the, the, the vile social media propaganda that the imperialists have developed. And the working class of the United States must realize that its destiny is arm in arm with the people around the world, arm in arm with the people around the world in a global united front against the imperialists. And the same for the small business owners, the small business owners, the farmers, the store owners, the, uh, you know, the local community business owners, their only future is in an alliance with the working class and in alliance with the world against the imperialists. The future of the world belongs to the working class. The working class is the final class of history. And it is the working class that will bring on bring on the destruction of imperialism and move humanity towards socialism and ultimately the, the ultimate final goal of a stateless, classless world of vast abundance of communism. That is the goal. That is the goal. And only the working class can defeat U.S. imperialism. And ultimately what we are seeing now is U.S. imperialism in crisis. Nobody wants to be U.S. imperialism. Nobody wants to adopt their system. The whole world sees it falling apart and being ripped to shreds. And so all they can do is spread chaos and spread instability around the world. That's all they can do. That's all they can do to try and maintain their system. However, however, they will fail. They will fail because at the end of the day, People will not surrender. They will assert their economic needs. They will demand a better life for their family and for their children. And humanity will march forward. The city building tendency will prevail, right? Um, right. Uh, socialist country developed logic of capitalism. So there you go, folks. There you go. Those are my opening remarks. I hope you found them spirited and inspiring. Uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Always a pleasure to do that. I will start answering your super chat questions shortly. Uh, but right now I'm going to get in a better position here. Um, gonna be more comfortable. And uh, then I will start calling you out as I see you. Names and locations, names and locations. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Who's with us? Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. Kendall in San Diego. Rees from Australia. Hawthorne, New Jersey. Who else is with us? Who else is with us? Chaya from Montreal. Ash in Chicago. Cleveland Pirate Alex. Ace in Toronto. John in Colorado. Mateus in Brazil. JT24 in Mississippi. Clyde Bank. Bendigo, Australia. David Fox. Good friend of the program. Bob Troy in New York. 
Joshua Tree, California. Kinky is with us tonight. Shout out to you, Kinky. Good friend of the program. Robert from Hawaii, San Diego. Neil Frazier in Hong Kong, China. David in China. Honolulu, Brazil. Kieran from San Diego. Auckland, New Zealand. Jenny Lynn in Cincinnati. Char Char Darling in San Angelo, Texas. One of the John Brown volunteers. Shout out to the John Brown volunteers. Much love. Tucson, Arizona, Matt in Baltimore, Tristan in Maryland. Shout out to you, Tristan, doing great stuff in the D.C. area. St. Louis, uh, Bradley Wasser, uh, Max Reed in Virginia, great stuff. Max the Sax, North Carolina, Bingham, New York, Australia, Hawthorne, California, Pomona, California, Georgia, not the state. There you go. Uh, Max in Sweden, Wisconsin, Peter from New York. Shout out to you, Peter from New York, William in California. Mindanao to Midwest, Lumpia Logic. We love you, Lumpia, right? Denver, Colorado, Taipei, Taiwan, China. That's right, Taiwan is China. Jason in Georgia, right? California, Dylan Smal, shout out to you. JR in Kalamazoo, up in Michigan. Birmingham, Alabama, very good. Jeff in Detroit, much love and respect. Well, shout out to you, Jeff. Best, best, best wishes to you. Harold in Illinois, West Virginia. Mo in Toronto, Edmonton, Canada. Michael in Ithaca, New York. Shout out to you, Michael. Far above Cayuga's waters with its waves of blue. Stands our noble alma mater, glorious to view. I'm sorry, I have never been to Ithaca, New York, never attended Cornell University, but you have a great alma mater. John McCarthyan in Chicagoland. Shout out to you, John. Sam in Chicago. Adam in Saint Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, Atlanta, Georgia, Andrew. Washington, Australia. Kinky and Jenny, very good. Argentina, uh, Maple in uh, Chapel Hill, Poland, Melbourne, Australia, Little Falls, New Jersey, Dan Keating. Shout out to you, Dan. Good friend of our work here. Sweden, Santa Monica, Mosin from Iran. Long live the CPI, says Tanky. Nate in San Francisco. Keaton, one of the John Brown volunteers out there in San Angelo, Texas. Shout out to you, Keaton. Australia, Sydney, Australia. Michelle from Mexico. Gabby is out in Chicago. Shout out to you, Gabby. Good friend of our work here and good friend of our program. Harold Sullivan in Naples, Florida. Germania, right? Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Pittsburgh, Pawtucket, right? Um, Gambayo. Um, South Dakota, Dave and Dave in Hamilton, Enoch, Australia, um, Maryland. Um, very, very good. CIA, Langley, Virginia. Oh, they watch everything we do. You can bet on that, right? Oh, the, the CIA never would pay attention to YouTube videos. <laughs> uh, gotta love the, the bread tube response, right? We've got a document now. We've been arguing that, that BreadTube is a disinformation operation, a deprogramming operation for a long time, but then their response, that's crazy. I mean, it's just it's just classic, right? You know, I, I was telling Gabby the other day, if you saw or not Gabby, Sabby, Sabby Sobs. I was telling Sabby Sobs the other night. You know, there was there was a time when someone said, you know, there are these things called germs, and they cause people to get sick. And someone said, You actually believe that people get sick because these little tiny things called germs? You actually believe that? You know, and there's a time someone said, hey, you know, the world is round. It's it's round. It's not flat. And someone said, you actually believe that the world is flat? That's not an argument, right? Not an argument. 
not an argument, right? We have argued that what RedTube does fits the pattern of CIA disinformation, and then we have an actual document from Valent Projects proving that Abigail Thorne uh, has gotten paid uh, by deep state forces. So, you know, I'm waiting for, I am waiting for, for anyone to say it. But they just do this argumentium ad ridicule. Are you actually saying that? That's crazy. I mean, come on, man. Perth in Australia, up the volunteers, Las Vegas, Kazakhstan, Netherlands, Sacramento, Ohio. Uh, Bill from... Castle, Pennsylvania, look for the connections. Uh, Oswald acted alone. No, he didn't. I don't think he did. U.S. support and later split with Saddam and Noriega, right? Very good point. Noriega, all of that's very good, right? Um, very good. Um, um, there we go. Um, I think that's, oh, Roman from Ohio. Very good. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. All right, um, so now I'm going to take another glass of water. And now, now I'm going to start answering your Super Chat questions. Now, the first one was from John McCarthy, and I don't quite understand exactly what John McCarthy was asking. But uh, John McCarthy was asking, um, uh, what is it? John McCarthy was asking... Uh, about uh, diplomacy and Cold War, what should be our focus? I think we should expose the economic roots of this, that this is about natural gas. It's about keeping Russia off the natural gas markets. It's about maintaining the super profits of U.S. imperialism. And that should be our focus. And our, our demand should be uh, that the profits of Wall Street shouldn't push us closer to World War III, um, and that Russia is not our enemy, and that just because American oil and gas giants want to push Russia off the market doesn't give them the right doesn't give them the right to escalate international tensions. Russia has done nothing wrong in Kazakhstan. Russia has done nothing wrong in Belarus. Russia has done nothing wrong in Ukraine. Um, they, are not, uh, they are not our enemy. And uh, we shouldn't be threatened with world war uh, simply because our leaders, um, our leaders uh, want to maintain you know, economic dominance on the global markets. So there you go. All right, 1968, Dubček. Well, Dubček was a leader in Czechoslovakia, uh, and he came to power as a result of kind of a, an anti-communist current or a social democrat, Gorbachevist current within the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. Um, and it was the Prague Spring where, you know, forces aligned with the United States, pushing, quote-unquote, socialism with a human face, took power in Czechoslovakia and were basically trying to cut off the relationship between Czechoslovakia and the Soviet government. Uh, they ended support, um, you know, um, okay. All right, all right, write it down. They ended support for uh, the U.S., uh, for the Vietnamese people and their struggle for national liberation. And uh, they were, you know, they were working against the Soviet Union. And um, that was a situation where basically the, the USA had set up an aligned government in Czechoslovakia. So the Soviet Union ultimately intervened in order to put back in the anti-imperialist forces within the communists in Czechoslovakia. That was the Prague Spring of 1968. Fidel Castro gave a very good speech about it, where he explained that basically what had happened was the, um, the, the Soviet Union had kind of let the situation get out of hand, um, but then they intervened, and that mistakes made by the Soviet Union caused um, caused the situation to get to that point. But ultimately, uh, Phil Oaks, right? Ultimately, 
ultimately the situation was the U.S. imperialists were intervening in Czechoslovakia. And it was a pro-imperialist uprising in Czechoslovakia, and so the Soviet Union had to intervene. Um, and that was, that was what happened in 1968. Um, are there enough Americans uh, who would fight Iran, Russia, and China? No, and that's why they have drones. Uh, and that's why they have green card soldiers. That's a really common trend, green card soldiers, where there's people to get their U.S. citizenship. They fight in the U.S. military. Um, but yes, at the end of the day, look, a war with Russia, a war with China, a war with Iran would be a disaster. We, we would lose. The U.S. imperialists would lose. And it would be a disaster for the human race. And millions of people would die. And yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, World War III would be a nightmare. Um, you know, it would probably reach a nuclear you know, at that, that point, and it would be a nightmare. Then um, we must do all that we can to prevent a new world war because we would not benefit from it in any way. All right, North Korea defectors. Well, here's the thing about North Korea defectors. Now, nobody talks about this. Nobody talks about this. But, you know, uh, there North Korea defectors, there are many different North Korea defectors. Not all of them say the same thing. There are some North, North Korea defectors who have gone back. I don't know if you know this, but there are a number of North Korea defectors who defected at one point and then went back. And they say, yeah, you know, things were things were bad here, and then I left, and then they weren't as good as I thought, and so I went back. That's happened. There's a number of North Korean defectors who've gone back. No one talks about that, number one. Number two, where do they go generally? Where do North Korean defectors generally go? Well, they're Korean already, so they go to South Korea. In South Korea, under the national security laws, it is a crime to say anything good about North Korea. Look up the national security law of South Korea. Right. Um, okay. All right. Look up the national security laws for South Korea. Uh, if in South Korea you were to say, you know, in North Korea, the country is is very nice and the people there live very well, you could go to prison under the national security laws. And in fact, uh, it was taught in South Korean schools uh, during the you know 60s, 70s, up into the 80s, that all North Koreans lived in caves, uh, that North Koreans lived in caves. I mean, you can read about this, that there was such deceptive propaganda in South Korea demonizing North Korea uh, that it, it got to be ridiculous, some of the allegations in South Korea's media about North Korea. So, you know, if these South, if these North Korean defectors were to say anything good about North Korea, they would lose their, they would, they would go to jail. So they have to say negative things, number one. Um, number two, um, we don't hear, you know, from all of them. Um, number three, you know, people generally don't leave a country. And this is the whole thing. It goes for any communist defector. People don't leave a country if they like it. Right. Um, you know, Miss Scarlett and her opinion about the Civil War does not represent all America's opinions. Right. Right. Miss Scarlett, you know, she lost lost her plantation and the Union Army. I do declare I do declare Captain Butler oh, what they've done to our land. Them Yankees, they've come down here and ruined our great country here in the South. You know, Miss Scarlett wouldn't be lying if she said very awful things about Abraham Lincoln, very awful things about the Union Army. She would be honest. But would she represent an accurate, would you understand the Civil War by interviewing Scarlett O'Hara? Would that give you an accurate portrayal? No, that would give you her perspective. 
And that's the same, you know, everyone thinks they know all about communism because they spoke to the Miami Cuban who lives down the street from them. Well, that Miami Cuban, he's got one perspective, okay? And he left. He didn't like it, right? If he liked it, he would stay, right? And that that's how these things go. And that, you know, I mean, I've told many stories. One great example, I was on a train one time selling a communist newspaper. There was a woman from Romania on the train. And she said, oh, I lived under communism. And it was horrible. And then the guy standing next to me said, yeah, he said, but isn't it worse now in Romania? And she paused for a moment because no one had ever said that to her. And she said, actually, yeah, it's a lot worse now. Well, there you go. But no one had ever said that. She came to the United States and Americans all want to hear how awful communism is. And none of them ever say to her, but isn't it worse now? And so, yeah, all you had to do to break down her anti-communism would be like, isn't it worse now? And oh, yeah, it's worse now. Um, you know, a lot of it's based on, you know, what is it that makes someone revolutionary? A lot of it is based on telling Americans what they want to hear. You know, I saw, I saw a, um, a Twitter account. There was this Republican who was running for office somewhere. She was a Chinese American woman and she was running for office and she said, Joe Biden's, you know, jobs guarantee program scares me because I grew up under Mao. I tweeted back at her. I said, if you grew up under Mao, then you would know that Joe Biden's jobs guarantee program is very different than having an entirely state-run economy centralized around leadership of the Communist Party. But that's what Americans want to hear, right? Um, so, you know, and and especially if you're in a more conservative area, but for the most part, I mean, until recently, now things are a little bit you know, weird in American politics, but until recently, even in the liberal area. Americans all want to hear about the evil regime. They all want to hear why America is great and free and why we should all be thanking God every day that we're Americans because it's so amazing. So if you come to the United States and, and you know, say anything other than that, you know, I actually, I did know somebody uh, who was very worried about her father. Um, she was born in the United States, but her father was Cuban. And her father would talk at length about how great Fidel Castro was. And she would always say to her dad, stop talking that way. You're going to get deported. Yeah. You know, her father came to the United States, was a Cuban, but he was very much, very much an admirer of Fidel Castro. And, you know, he was, you know, his family was like, stop it. Don't talk that way. You're going to get us all deported from the country. Never hear about that, right? Um, you know, when you come to the country, when you apply for your citizenship, one of the questions on the form is, are you now a member of the Communist Party. You cannot get your citizenship if you're a member of the Communist Party. So thinking that by talking to some immigrant who came from a communist country, you're going to get the gospel truth about everything that happened in that country. No, you're going to get one person's perspective. And that one person is going to be, first of all, they know they can be possibly lose their citizenship if they sound like a communist, number one. Number two, they're going to be surrounded by people who want to hear anti-communism and they're going to be, you know, have gotten an audience. The, the, the scarier the stories they tell, the more people are interested. Number three, uh, their family is going to be saying to them, don't say anything good about the government. The chances that they will say something good about it are slim. Now, that's not to say that there aren't. And that's the other thing. You, There are communist immigrants in the United States. There are people who lived in the Soviet Union and have come to the United States and said it was good. They don't get on TV and they're not the majority by any means, but they exist. And there are Americans, uh, you know, there's a whole book called Some of Us that was published by, it was four Chinese academic women who grew up during the Cultural Revolution and they have a good feeling about it. 
Um, and they, you know, and they wrote a book, Some of Us, and it's all about how they think the Cultural Revolution was good. So they exist, right? There's a professor in North Carolina who grew up under Mao, and he wrote a whole book about, you know, he says life under Mao was good. And they do exist. Those people do exist. Now, they're a minority, and they don't get on the front page of the New York Times, and they don't, you know, and but they exist. So even here in the United States, even where immigrant communities are terrified of saying anything good about communism, even where, you know, anti-communist immigrants have piled into this country and, and you know, are here because they're running away from communist governments and have their opinion— even here, even in spite of all of that, there are some communist immigrants from communist countries here. There are, right? There are. So, so what the you heard these North Korean defectors take it with a grain of salt. Um, I, I don't know anything about radio fields in Poland. So there you go. I can't. I don't know about that. All right. All right, Ukrainian Nazis during the Soviet era. Right, well, there was, you know, there was an uprising, Stepan Bandera, uh, he was aligned with the Nazis fighting the Soviets. And actually, that's one thing, Trotsky, that's one reason that I am not sympathetic to Trotskyism, is because during, during the 1930s, Leon Trotsky, Leon Trotsky called for the independence of Ukraine. I don't know if you know that, but Leon Trotsky called for the independence of Ukraine. He called for an independent Soviet Republic of the Ukraine, and that was a reactionary demand. Trotsky was was basically repeating the anti-Stalin talking points of the Ukrainian separatists who are aligned with the Nazis, and the Trotskyites went around protesting for an independent Soviet Republic of the Ukraine. That's not principled behavior. That's not good. Right. And that's, you know, if you want evidence of Trotsky possibly being a Nazi collaborator, the fact that during the time of, you know, the 1930s and in the lead up to World War II, Trotsky's going around talking about an independent Ukraine, that's a sign. That's a sign that uh, that's not good. Now, um, another thing I will add is I, I think this is amusing. Um, you know, there's an awful human being you know, here in New York City named Dov Hyken. And he is an awful human being. He is a former terrorist, a member of the, the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, that shot people and bombed buildings and assassinated, you know, assassinated Palestinian activists. And I mean, he's an awful person. You know, he admits he was part of the, the Jewish Defense League, the JDL, you know, and he, you know, I mean, he's a, you know, he, I mean, the JDL, look up the Jewish Defense League. They were a violent extremist organization that existed during, you know, the 1970s and 80s. They were led by Mir Kahani, right-wing violent group. Um, but this guy, Dov Hyken, who's a local politician here in Brooklyn, New York, he was a member of the Jewish Defense League. And he actually gave a speech, which I thought was very interesting. And in his speech, he said this. He said, you know, Ukraine, there's a lot of good people there, but, uh, but you know, my mother is from there, and she told me, that the Ukrainians who supported the Nazis were worse than the Nazis. So even even this right wing anti you know anti Palestinian racist he got up and according to his mother who's from Ukraine and is Jewish the Ukrainians who worked with the Nazis are worse than the Nazis. You know that's the assessment. So yeah you know I mean and and there were you know there's a lot of there were a lot of extreme war criminals uh, who were associated. Uh, who collaborated with the Nazis in Ukraine, um, you know, and you can look into that, look up, you know, Ukrainian Nazi war criminals, et cetera. So, yeah, I don't know what, what, what else you want me to say about that. 
Why is there so much anti-communism in Poland and the Ukraine? Um, in Ukraine, it's divided. You know, in Eastern Ukraine, the Communist Party is very popular, and uh, there's you know there's a lot of nostalgia for the Soviet Union in Eastern Ukraine. Now, Western Ukraine is a different story. In Western Ukraine, you have you know, and basically there's there are two different historical narratives in Ukraine. West Ukraine, they say all of Ukraine's problems are because of the Soviet Union. East Ukraine, they say all of Ukraine's problems are because we got rid of the Soviet Union. There are two historical narratives there. There's a division. The country, the country is kind of polarized around those things. And in 2014, when Obama overthrew the government with Euromaiden, they, they exacerbated those cultural and political divisions. Um, as far as Poland is concerned, right? Well, you know, again, you know, even at the time of the Soviet Union. Poland still had differences with the Soviet Union, right? I mean, Poland took out loans from American banks in the 1970s and 80s. Poland drifted further away from the Soviet Union. Historically, there are ethnic differences between Poles and Russians, right? Poland is largely Roman Catholic. Russia is Eastern Orthodox, largely, right? And Poles and Russians have ethnic differences between them. Now, not all Poles feel that way. There are many Poles, uh, you know, they're not the majority that, that have positive things to say about the Soviet Union. So it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, but, you know, in, in Poland, there has been heavy political repression of the Communist Party of Poland, um, you know, and uh, especially since the NATO, um, right, left opposition. <clears throat> Especially since things have escalated against Russia, um, you know, we've seen a lot more anti-communism and anti-communist laws and such in Poland. 1939, Red Scare. The Trotskyites wrote a song about it. Uh, it's called uh, My Darling Party Line. You can look it up. Up in Moscow, in the Kremlin, in the fall of 39, there's a Russian and a Prussian writing up the party line. Leon Trotsky was a Nazi, and we knew that for a fact. Pravda said it, and we read it, until the Stalin-Hitler pact. Now old Trotsky, once a Nazi, that was then the party line. But now the Nazis are hotsy-totsy, Trotsky's setting British mimes. Uh, you know, this was, this was um, you know, it was, it was 1939. The Soviet Union had gone to every every Western European country and offered to join an anti-fascist alliance. France briefly had one with them and then broke it, and none of the other countries would sign it. So as things escalated, you know, and Hitler was, was moving eastward, and basically to buy time, the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact, not an alliance, but a non-aggression pact. That was what it was called, the Molotov-Ribbentrop non-aggression pact, um, you know, was signed, and it drew a line down Europe. And it said, the Nazis will not go on this side of this line, and the Soviets will not go on this side of the line. And it was a line down Europe. The 1939 Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact drew a line down the center of Europe. Um, and then the Nazis invaded Poland and overthrew the government. And so after that, the Soviets said, oh, okay, well, you remember that line? And they moved their forces right up to the line. It wasn't a joint invasion of Poland. And that's the lie that we often hear. It was a joint invasion of Poland. It wasn't a joint invasion of Poland because the, the Polish government in exile never declared war against the Soviet Union. 
Never. So if it was a joint invasion, they would have declared war against both the Nazis and the Soviets. They never did that. Um, there was a handshake that went on, uh, you know, and there was an understanding, but it was never a joint invasion. It was a non-aggression pact. In 1939, there was a non-aggression pact. However, the United States, you know, felt that Nazi Germany was their enemy and the Soviets shouldn't have done that. Well, if that was the case, the United States should have been, you know, friendlier to the Soviets when they were trying to build an alliance. They should have, you know, supported the Spanish Republic and its fight against Franco and fascism. But regardless, the United States and Britain felt like, oh my God, the communists have, you know, they have they've signed this non-aggression pact. And so Time Magazine started calling the communists the communazis. Um, and uh, there started to be an anti-communist, you know, crackdown in the United States. Uh Earl Browder was sent to federal prison on a passport violation, um, you know, uh, and he was then, when he ran for president in 1940, he wasn't able to leave the state of New York. Um, so he made a vinyl record of all his speeches and the communists gathered in their houses and listened to speeches by Earl Browder because they couldn't travel around under the law. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was an anti-communist, um, there was some anti-communism in 1939, a number of people quit the Communist Party in 1939. The parents of um, Naomi Klein, uh, they quit the Communist Party in 1939 and they moved to Canada. Um, so, you know, um, and the it caused a crisis in Trotskyism also. In 1939, that's when you have the Schachtmanite Trotskyists and the third camp Trotskyists breaking away from the main line of Trotskyism. Um, and it's like, there's a book on it called The Struggle for a Proletarian Party by James Cannon. Um, and there was also a book called, um, uh, I believe it was called, um, uh, by Leon Trotsky called In Defense of Marxism. Uh, it's not vodka. I don't drink alcohol. It's water. But <clears throat> anyway, all right, next point. All right. All right. Um, what do you say to those who say socialist countries developed with the logic of capitalism? Well, I, I'm not sure I would agree with that. They developed with the logic of capitalism. I think what that refers to is the fact that there's only one global economy, okay? So socialist countries, they may have centrally planned state-run economies, but they're still going to be exporting products on the international market, right? So, and those products that they sell, the price of those products is going to be based on supply and demand, um, you know, and they're going to have to do business with capitalist countries and, uh, you know, they're going to import products from capitalist countries and the prices of those imported products are going to be based on supply and demand. And so while socialist countries can have socialist economics domestically, they're still competing. They're still part of a global capitalist economy, right? And that they're buying and selling is going to be done as part of the global capitalist economy. And that's a fact, right? Until the whole world is socialist, there's going to be market impact on socialist countries. That's a fact, right? And that's why when people say, well, China has market reforms, it can't be socialist. Well, at the end of the day, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, all socialist countries are affected by the world market to some degree or other. Look, in Stalin's Russia, you know, they hired, uh, you know, they hired, you know, uh, corporations, right? The Koch brothers, their father, Fred Koch, that's how he got his start is his company, his oil company was hired by Stalin to set up the Soviet oil companies. Uh, you know, American car companies were set up, you know, in joint ventures with the Soviet Union and that there's always been a market impact on a socialist country. No socialist country is able to completely break with the market. Domestically, they can plan their economy and have a state run economy, but they're going to sell products internationally. 
in a capitalist market. They're going to import products in a capitalist market. And in most socialist countries, there's a market sector to some degree or other. And that until you have global socialism, there is still going to be a capitalist impact on socialism. That's true. I think that's what it refers to. All right. U.S. support for Saddam Hussein and Noriega. Very different cases. Happened around a similar time in the 80s, um, but very different cases. So let me break both of those down for you. All right, isn't that like condescending, right? I'm like mansplaining. I'm going to break it down for you. Or is that, I'm not, how do you say these things? I don't know. I don't know how you say these things, but whatever. I'm just going to, I'm going to talk about U.S. support for Saddam Hussein and U.S. support for Niriyega. U.S. support for Saddam Hussein was about the fact that in 1979, Iran had the Islamic revolution of Iran. Iran had Khomeini come to power. Khomeini was an anti-imperialist. Iraq had a socialist government, Ba'athist Arab socialism, and Iraq has a Shia majority. There are Sunni Iraqis and Shia Iraqis. And Saddam Hussein's government, even though Saddam Hussein was Sunni, it was still, it was mixed. And people, you know, they were, it was a very secular government. However, there were Shia in Iraq who were religious fanatics who were very inspired by the 1979 Islamic Revolution. So they went out and protested and Iraq felt threatened by that. And so Iraq attacked Iran, accusing Iran of having fomented like Shiite Muslim uprisings, Shia Muslim uprisings in Iraq. And so, and you know, there's some Shia holy sites in Iraq, like Karbala, right? Karbala, you know, the site of the Battle of Karbala is a very, very, um, you know, um, I, Uh, the, the, the site of Karbala, which is a very important site to Shia Muslims, is in Iraq. And that there are, you know, Iran had a Shia government. Iraq had a secular government. So Iraq felt threatened by Iran. So Iraq attacked Iran. Um, then um, the United States, you know, saw Iran as a threat. So it supported Iraq. But the United States, as later proven, also helped Iran later. And what was happening was the USA was trying to play these two countries against each other. They wanted Shia Muslim revolutionaries and Ba'ath Arab socialist revolutionaries to hate each other. That's basically what happened. They were trying to manipulate. There were two revolutionary currents in the Middle East. There was the Shia revolutionary Islamic current and the Ba'athist Arab socialist secular current. And they wanted to, you know, have a river of blood between them. And you also have to remember that Persians and Arabs are ethnically different. A lot of people think that Iranian, Iranians are Arabs. They are not. Iranians are Persians. And there's also different ethnicities in Iran. There's Turkmen in Iran. There's Kurds in Iran. But, you know, there's some Arabs also in Iran. But, but ethnically, Arabs and Persians are a different ethnicity. And Ba'athism is an Arab nationalist ideology. It's fighting for the Arab people. So Persians are going to be seen by Arabs and Ba'athists as others, as not, not Arabs. And, you know, there's ethnic differences there. So there's ethnic differences there, plus the Iranians are super religious and Shia, and the Iraqis are super, uh, super secular and Ba'athist and Arab nationalist. And it was a recipe for disaster. And chemical weapons were used, and at least a million people died. It was an awful war. And it was part of Brzezinski's strategy for sowing instability in that region and maintaining U.S. dominance, weakening two anti-imperialist forces in that region. It was awful. Um, 
Um, so that's that's that. And the USA was supporting Iraq against Iran, but then later supported Iran against Iraq. That's that. Now, Noriega is a little bit of a different story. So Panama is a very important country because of the Panama Canal, right? The USA dominates the Panama Canal. It gives the USA a lot of power in global trade. And throughout the Cold War, the USA had the strategy of backing like strongman authoritarian regimes that would crush any communist resistance, right? So, you know, the USA backed, you know, Pinochet in Chile. The USA backed Park Chung-hee in South Korea and Sigmund Rhee in South Korea. The USA backed various military governments and authoritarian regimes, Rios Mont in Guatemala, you know, Somoza in Nicaragua, etc. Well, as the Soviet Union was falling, the USA realized, and it was really, it started in the 70s, you know, with Milton Friedman and, you know, Pinochet in Chile, that, that military strongmen are not really good when it comes to implementing free market policies because military strongmen have to stay in power, right? If you are a military dictator, you will not stay in power unless there is a big section of the population that's loyal to you. People don't realize this, but it's like, you know, the only reason that Park Chung-hee stayed in power in South Korea was because he developed the cities. Now, he was a brutal dictator. He had concentration camps for homeless children where they were worked to death. He murdered thousands of communist leftists. He shot down students in the streets, crushed the trade unions. Park Chung-hee was a vicious guy, but through Bonapartist maneuvering, he raised living standards in South Korea's urban centers, and he created a very strong economy in South Korea. And the same goes, you know, for a lot of these authoritarian regimes, that, that military dictators and strongmen, the way that they stay in power uh, is that they, they take care of somebody. They cultivate a layer of the population that is loyal to them. Right. And in Latin America, uh, stratifying the population is a very big, important part of this. Right. That, you know, that like Rios Mont, for example, he took care of the lighter skinned folks in the urban areas while committing genocide against the indigenous people. Um, and that this is how these military authoritarian Bonapartist regimes operate is they find a layer of the population that they take really good care of and then they mobilize them to go slaughter another section of the population. Right. It's it's Bonapartism. It's like, you know, it's it's an authoritarian repressive regime. So in Panama, the USA backed Noriega to be the authoritarian strongman. And he was the military strongman. And he took care of one section of the population and he brutally repressed the others. And there was no danger of communist revolution ever happening in Panama. However, neoliberalism, as we're getting towards the fall of the Soviet Union, neoliberalism starts to be the big trend. Privatizations, cutbacks, Etc. Well, Noriega, Noriega um, is not going to be very helpful in order to do that because privatizations and cutbacks uh, are going to cut into his ability to be the authoritarian strongman. So as the United States was pressuring Noriega to have an open society, that's what George Soros and the open society, that's what that's all about, uh, Noriega was resisting. And instead, he started expanding his base of support among the population. He started giving people free health care. And um, I did that, Kazakhstan, I did that at the opening. The whole opening was about Kazakhstan. So roll it back. But, um, you know, uh, but, but Noriega, Noriega, he started doing things. And the threat of, of the USA putting pressure on him to have an open society, he started engaging in more progressive Bonapartist moves. If you want to learn about 
Panama. Go see the movie, The Panama Deception. Um, you know, a number of people who worked with me at the International Action Center and worked with, um, and worked with, excuse me, worked with uh, Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General. Uh, they made this very, very good movie, The Panama Deception, that showed uh, the lies that led to the U.S. overthrow of the government of Panama. But yeah, Noriega was one of these military strongmen backed by the United States who didn't, you know, didn't want to be overthrown and in response to the threat of being overthrown, engaged in more populist maneuvers. Lyndon LaRouche. I've read a lot of books by Lyndon LaRouche. Um, you know, I don't agree with him on everything, but I, I respect him. I think he was somebody uh, who was at odds with the U.S. imperialists, um, you know, um, and he exposed a lot of the lies um, and he promoted science and historical progress. He exposed the synthetic left and kind of the toxic nature of the synthetic left and the new left. Um, at the same time, a lot of what he said about the Soviet Union was very wrong, and I don't agree with a lot of what he said about the Soviet Union. Um, and I respect the organization, uh, you know, the, the LaRouche organization. I respect them. Uh, I don't agree with them on everything. I don't think climate change is a hoax. I think climate change is, is real. Um, and we have other disagreements. I'm a Marxist. Uh, they, they, you know, they are not Marxists. They, they draw from what they call the American system, uh, where they talk about, um, they, they draw from Friedrich List and Alexander Hamilton and Henry Clay and others. But at the same time, you know, I respect them and I don't think they're fascists. I don't think they're Nazis or anything like that. I think that they're anti-imperialists. They're an anti-imperialist faction in the United States. They were Trotskyites at one point and now they are, you know, they are they have their own kind of worldview and I respect them. And around the world, uh, especially now, they are promoting, you know, they're promoting fusion energy. They're promoting um, they're promoting peace with Russia and China. And so I think they're doing very good work and I respect them as an organization despite our ideological disagreements. And I'm friends with some of their members here in New York, but you know, um, and you know, I don't like the cancel culture, you know, and I'm friendly with the Nation of Islam and I'm friendly with various people around the world and I don't like the cancel culture. I respect them, they do good work. I mean, they do more than anybody else to promote peace with China to promote peace with Russia, so I respect them. Um, so, you know, and I will work with people who are anti-imperialist. I'm sick of focusing on what divides us, and I'm I'm focused on bringing people together. You know, they are friendly. They are friendly to Russia and China. They believe in economic progress, so I want to be friendly to them, and I want to have a relationship with them. Same, same for the Nation of Islam. The same for various Marxists and socialists. The same for anyone who's promoting promoting anti-imperialism. Anti-imperialism is the cutting edge. If you're for the imperialists, you're not a revolutionary. If you're against the imperialists, you are a revolutionary. Phil Oakes, Phil Oakes. Phil Oakes is a great you know, musician from the 1960s. He did I'm Not Marching Anymore. Uh, he did Love Me, I'm a Liberal. Uh, uh, you know, kind of cutting edge, kind of Marxist folk music from the 60s. Uh, he, um, drugs really destroyed him. I mean, he had a psychological breakdown as a result of using too many, too much, hallucinogens. And if you look at what eventually happened to Phil Oakes, the tragedy of Phil Oakes, it's largely a result of, of hallucinogens uh, because he was an amazing, beautiful folk singer. So there you go. Um, Vietnam is a model for socialist democracy. I don't think there's any model, right? You shouldn't copy any country, right? When socialism comes to the United States, it's going to be unique. Socialism in Vietnam is much more in line with the, you know, it's it's a it's a, a, a political system that comes out of the Cold War era, right? Modeled on the Soviet Union and China, um, you know. But if you look at the way socialism has come in Venezuela and Nicaragua, it's it's different. But that's okay. Socialism will be will be different in every country. 
Um, you know, and so I, I think we should study Vietnam's political model, learn from it and, and not judge it and not, but at the same time, uh, you know, learn from it, learn from its successes and all that as we develop a model for the United States, right? We should study all political models, Vietnam, China, Russia, uh, Cuba, uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Nicaragua, the Baath Arab countries, uh, the Baathist Arab socialist countries. But at the end of the day, when socialism comes to the United States, it's going to be a unique form of socialism for this country only. <clears throat> All right, people's democracy. Well, the people's democracy, that was after the Second World War. Um, you know, the governments that were aligned with the Soviet Union tended to be a merger of different anti-fascist forces. The Social Democrats, the Communists, uh, Christian anti-fascists, you know, they would, they would have an, a government that emerged that was kind of an alliance of different anti-fascist um, forces in the country. And eventually, you know, the, the people's democratic government that had communists and social Democrats and Christians and others would merge into, they'd have a new party like the workers party. Um, and that was the model. And I mean, it basically what it comes from is in any revolution, you're going to have a polarization of society. The communists are going to sit at the center of a united front right? And in Eastern Europe, the communists were at the center of a united front against the fascists, right? The Nazis had invaded and occupied this country. So the communists were, you know, the Soviet army was aligned with everybody in the country. They sat at the center of a coalition of people that were against the fascists. In many countries, though, it's about imperialism, right? In China, the communists sat at the center of a coalition that was against U.S. imperialism. Um, and, you know, wherever communists take power, they're in a united front. So in that sense, in that sense, yes, the people's democracy model is accurate. And that if we're serious about having socialism, it's not going to be one little faction that just grows and takes power. It's going to be a united front of forces. And it's going to be a polarization. There'll be a question, a burning question in the country. Are you for this or against it? And the people that are for this will be on one side. The people that are against it will be on the other. In Latin America, uh, it tends to be neoliberalism. Right in the Bolivarian countries, it was neoliberal reforms. Are you for the IMF and the World Bank and neoliberalism, or are you against it? And by polarizing society, a united front against neoliberalism in Venezuela and in Bolivia and in Nicaragua, they took power. Right, and that that's that is what can be learned from that. That polarization is often how communists are able to take power. So I think that's that's really the essence of, of the point there. Um, so yeah, there you go. Um, what makes someone a revolutionary? Are they working against imperialism? I think that's really the question, right? I mean, if they're working against imperialism, if they're aligning with other people to work against the imperialists, they're a revolutionary. If they're not working against the imperialists or they're they're just in isolation, they say they're against imperialism, but they don't do anything about it, they're not a revolutionary. You are working against the imperialists. If you are working against imperialism, you are a revolutionary. Um, was there any value from the left opposition? <clears throat> um, well, you know, I will say, um, I'm sorry, isn't it funny that January, uh, still call it an insurrection, but they don't, yeah, that's a good point. It's a very good point. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about that. Kazakhstan, January 6th hypocrisy. We'll talk about that. But, you know, I mean, I've read a lot of Trotsky's writings. I don't agree with with it, but, you know, in order to really disagree with it, I had to know it, right? Um, and that, you know, Trotsky can write with a little more of a an honesty because he's not in power in the Soviet Union and he's criticizing the Soviet Union from outside. He can kind of explain the Soviet Union in ways that are a little more frank. 
Um, however, you know, it's like many times you're reading Trotsky, you're reading The Revolution Betrayed, or you're reading what he's writing about the Soviet Union. You're like, why is he condemning them for it, right? He understands the Soviet Union had to develop the way it did. They had to have a bureaucracy, right? They That bureaucracy, you know, I mean, you know, the Soviet Union developed a certain way, but why does he condemn it? Why does he say that's bad if that's how it had to develop? The material forces, Russia was not going to have a permanent revolution and it wasn't wealthy enough to have a, uh, you know, a, just a, just an egalitarian socialist society, right? That it had to become, a, you know, develop a, a form of socialism that had a bureaucracy uh, and that bureaucracy is going to have a conservatizing influence, et cetera. He gives a very good analysis, but then he moralizes it. He moralizes it. Um, and that's, that's, you know, it's like, oh, they're bad. It's like, well, no, I mean, you know, it starts to raise some weird questions. Watch my video on Trotskyism. I did it at the Saxton Lectures. Saxton Lecture 2.2 is on Trotsky. And I get into this stuff in great detail. All right. Um, uh, why did nobody support Saddam Hussein in 1991? I wouldn't say that nobody supported him. Um, <clears throat> Chile is a new president. I wouldn't say that nobody supported him. I wouldn't say that. I would say that, you know, the U.S. imperialists mobilized against him, but many in the Arab world um, sympathized with him. Uh, many anti-imperialist states condemned the way the USA acted in 1991. Uh, I don't think it's accurate to say that nobody supported Saddam Hussein in 1991. Obviously, you know, the, the, you know, the USA was leading the global community. The Soviet Union was falling, so, you know, things were changing, but yeah. All right. Um, yeah, Kazakhstan. They're calling it a rebellion. They're celebrating it in U.S. media. And then they call a bunch of rednecks running through the U.S. Capitol an insurrection. The, the amount of hypocrisy, right? That, you know, they're celebrating utter chaos and mass deaths on the streets of Kazakhstan. The country being cast into instability and chaos. People being shot down and killed and robbed at gunpoint and raped. They're celebrating that. But then it's like, oh, my God, some rednecks, you know, farted in Nancy Pelosi's chair. This is the end of it. The end. The day democracy nearly died. Ugh. I mean, it's just hypocrisy. January 6th was not a coup. OK, January 6th was a, pro a protest, a rowdy protest in which there was criminal trespassing and vandalism that took place. And I mean, I'm not a legal expert, but. The, the idea that somehow the election results were going to be overturned because Buffalo Head was running around the U.S. Capitol building. I mean, give me a break. You really think that, that you know, that Buffalo Head, you know, it's going to be like, oh, dear, you know, oh, dear, Buffalo Head's running around the U.S. Capitol. I guess we can't, we got to overturn the results. Oh, boy, you know, you know, some, some, some racist jackass with the Confederate flag is walking through, walking through. Uh, you know, the lobby of the Capitol building. So I guess we got to, you know, we got to call off, you know, call off the election I mean, give me a break. I mean, what's disturbing is that it was allowed to happen. I've been to many protests in Washington, D.C. You can't do that. The fact that they were able to get into the Capitol as they did shows that to some degree or other, there was state collusion. I've talked about Ray Epps. Um, I've talked about, you know, and what happened on January 6th, we don't know the details of how many, how many, um, you know, how many FBI informants were involved. And, you know, I mean, obviously the way things developed on the one hand, like, I mean, it couldn't have just happened if there wasn't some support for it, but it was not a coup. A coup would involve the military. All right. A coup would involve, you know, involve like, you know, Trump would be like 
openly calling for that. He would be trying to actually overthrow the, the government. That was not what happened. Mike Pence wasn't with Trump. The Supreme Court wasn't with Trump. The military wasn't with Trump. And no, this was Trump, uh, you know, you know, um, you know, I, I, um, I, this was Trump basically trying to say, I'm going to go out with a bang. I'm going to be remembered as the guy who made a big mess in the U.S. Capitol. But yeah, and the fact that U.S. media is celebrating Kazakhstan and then, you know, there you go. Buffalo Head turned out to be some kind of hippie anarchist type off of his rocker on psychedelics. Well, yeah, he was a, a climate change protester before he became, uh, you know, what he is now. Uh, before he became a QAnon guy, right? I think his name's Jake and Jelly, and he was a climate change guy. And I believe, if not, he was also like an actor, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of these social media personalities are very shady, very, very, very shady. Um, and I, I mean, who knows? I mean, he's in prison right now. I mean, so, I mean, if somebody was promising him protection, they left him out to dry, um, you know, I mean, but, you know, I mean, a lot of these people that are allowed to just kind of blow up on social media, it's like, I think he's ex-military, if I'm not mistaken. And then he was a climate change protester. And now he's a QAnon guy. He's from Arizona and, you know, shady, you know, shady stuff. But there you go. There you go. Um, you know, I made a video in the aftermath of the election of, uh, of, or after, in the aftermath of January 6th, I made a video to Trump supporters and that video, the audio of it is being played on the radio on WBAI, a radio station. WBAI is playing an audio recording of my video on, on the radio. Um, and, uh, you know, people, that video made a big splash. That video I made a message to Trump supporters from a communist that made a big splash. So there you go. Chile's new president. Um, I'm disappointed by some of what he said, condemning Venezuela, et cetera. But at the same time, never say never. When Hugo Chavez first got elected, you know, he was saying he was for neither capitalism or socialism. But then events escalated the way he did and he became a revolutionary. When Lincoln first got elected, Lincoln said that he didn't want to free end slavery. He just, all he wanted to do, he said, was he just wanted to, to restrict the power of the slaveholders. But then he was forced into a situation where he ended up leading a civil war to end slavery. So, you know, I don't want to judge people immediately after they take into office. I gave AOC a hell of a chance. And AOC, you never know. Things could change. But right now, AOC, eh. But when she first came in, I was not, I was careful. I said, don't, don't. You know, there's there's too many people that are too quick to condemn. They they it's it's part of this internet cancel culture. Nobody wants anything to work out. Everyone just wants to be ah shit. There is no hope. You know that's not the right attitude. Give people a chance. You know, give people a chance. Hope that they can become better by circumstances. But yeah, at this point, AOC, you know, not a big fan. However, however, you know what I mean. When she first came in, I said. You know, let's give her a chance here. Okay, I'm disappointed. Okay, I'm disappointed. Yeah, okay, I'm disappointed. Yeah, okay, I'm very disappointed. No, AOC sucks. At this point, eh, you know, unless she has a really big turnaround, not a big fan. But that said, you know, that said, uh, you know, um, even AOC, like, again, things could rapidly change. We don't know. But uh, the same with this Chile guy. Yeah, a lot of what he's saying, okay, he's against neoliberalism. That I like. He's against cutbacks and neoliberalism. That's good. Not taking anti-imperialist positions. Eh, that's disappointing. But we'll see. I mean, we shall see. 
All right, folks, my throat is, you know, is not being cooperative tonight, so I'm going to have to cut it off here. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression, but the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution 